Christian author Bruce Larson tells the story of going on vacation with his family, with his wife and young kids. They were going to a national park and just outside the national park, he saw a sign that said, nature is camp three miles. He looked over to his wife and said, you know, it's a beautiful day and the kids have been in the car for a long time. How about we go check out this nature's camp and see if they have any trails? She thought it was a good idea, so they turn and start making their way to this camp. And as they're coming, they see some people coming from the opposite direction that are riding bikes, about four or five people coming towards them. And as they get closer, it becomes obvious that these bike riders are not wearing a stitch of clothing. <laughs> That's when it dawns on him that naturist is not the same as nature. <laughs> he doesn't know what to do. He drives past and he, he wants to turn around, but he doesn't want to turn around too quick because he'll catch right back up with the bicyclists. And so as they're there trying to get their way out of the situation, um, all of a sudden he hears his son in the back seat say, Dad, did you see that? <laughs> yes, son, I saw that. Dad, they weren't wearing any helmets. <laughs> Apparently his son, you know, has a shorter perspective down in the back seat that he couldn't see everything like mom and dad could. Our perspective is critical. We've talked about this before, but how we see things is, um, changes everything. Uh, there's a picture of a hiking trail I'd like to show you that when you look at this hiking trail, um, it looks beautiful, it looks great. Beautiful, right? You wanna think, oh, that's nice, that's um, one thing. But, but what if we were to change our perspective and not just focus on the trail, but to look up? we would see the majestic mountain, Mount Rainier. You see, our, our focus will determine what we see. We all have a filter. Uh, when, we, when it comes to scripture, we all have a filter and our filters form our, our focus and focus forms our perspective. Perspective forms our presumptions and presumptions forms our process. That when we talk about filters, I, I remember as a kid, I tried a red apple and I didn't care for it. And so I spent years of my life thinking I really didn't like apples and was always baffled by why an apple pie could be so amazing when it's made of that stuff. You see, I, I thought because I had tried one apple that I didn't like any apples. But my filter was determining my focus, and my focus was forming my perspective. My perspective formed a presumption, and presumption formed my process as far as I didn't think I liked apples. But then I tried a different kind of apple. Who knew there were different kinds of apples? And now I know it's, it wasn't all apples. There's just a, a type of apple I didn't care for. When we approach Scripture... We need to keep this in mind. You remember uh, Pastor Justin and Ernie have shared a, a, a about doing the hard work of comprehension. That when we read scripture, we have to acknowledge that there's a filter. That the Bible wasn't written directly to us. It's written for us, applies to us, but was written you know, 2,000 years ago. 
uh, to a, a different continent, a different culture, culture, a different way of seeing things, that when we read scripture, we have to be very careful and remember that we have a Western, uh, more contemporary um, mindset, filter that we're seeing things through and that we have to really understand and dig in uh, what's going on. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there are times when I read the Bible and I've just thought, man, I do not get it. I know it's not written on an extremely high reading level, but there are just parts that I, I struggled to get right off the bat. If you're like me, you're in good company. I mean, that's, there's a reason for that when you think about it. I, I take comfort in this, Timothy. Timothy was a, a protege of Paul. The apostle Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else. And, and that Paul, uh, man, he, he has some wisdom. And Timothy was like his son in the faith that, that he knew Paul. Paul knew Timothy. And, and Paul wrote two, two letters that we have in scripture to Timothy. And I love what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, reflect on what I'm saying. And the Holy Spirit will give you insight. I find comfort in that. Timothy, who shared the same culture as Paul, who knew Paul, was told, hey, you're not gonna get all of this at once, but, but reflect on it and the Holy Spirit will give you insight. That, that's comforting to know. Then, then it's crazy for us to assume that we can read scripture and get all of it in one reading. Uh, the Bible's living and active. Have you noticed you can read a, a passage again and again, and there's something new that you learn from it, and you think, how did I not see this before? That's the wonder of, of God's word. Paul, you know, wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else, had to tell Timothy to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to give insight. Well, I, I also find it comforting. Peter, we have a couple of letters from Peter to the church, and, and Peter talks about Paul. He says, listen, you know, Paul has been given wisdom from God. And, and what Paul writes in his letters, man, there are just times it is hard to understand. Second Peter 3, if the church that shared the same culture, the understood the teaching tradition, the understood that, shared that, if they even said it was difficult. It shows it's God-inspired that we need the Holy Spirit to guide us, that when we read scripture, we can't assume that we're, we've mastered it, but that we are searching and seeking for his guidance in the living word. And so I wanna take a moment before we get to our text Let's just take a moment and let's try to block out all of the distractions, everything that's going on, and let's take a moment and let's truly seek God's leading. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What an opportunity you've given us. Lord, I, I pray that you'll bless the reading of the word and that, Father, you will turn hearers into doers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 10, picking up in verse 21. In that same hour, hold on, all right. Pause. In that same hour, we've got to see, okay, it's been a week since we were in Luke 10. Last week, 
We talked about Jesus had sent 72 out to go and share the good news of the kingdom, to heal, and they come back rejoicing and saying, you know, the, the evil spirits, the demons are, are subject to us in your name. They are amazed at the power that Jesus has. The good news of the kingdom is spreading. They're excited. But remember, Pastor Ernie said, hey, hey, it's, it's position in this fight over power. Remember, Jesus refocuses their joy from what they were doing to what? That their names are written in heaven. That's all God. That's not us. That's God. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is refocusing their joy. He, he is reminding them, remember what the Father has done for you. But did you notice in the beginning, we, we don't just have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit and the Father here. We have a, a picture of the, the three in one, the Godhead, and that, that, that Jesus rejoicing there, that word is, is ineffable. That word doesn't really translate in our vocabulary. That he has such a deep joy within that it, it, it can't help but come out. This time of year, we, we always talk about joy, and it's the, the joyous season. And I, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's, it's not easy to have joy, is it? No one's going to admit to that here, but I, I've seen people and heard of people asking for a friend. Uh, uh, how do we have joy? How do we have more joy? I mean, who doesn't want more joy? It, 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 it really blows my mind how it seems like in every couple, every relationship, there's the really joyous one and then the grouch, you know, not grouch, but the extremely level-headed one. <laughs> yes, that, that all of us, I think, would say we could use more joy, if not for us, for the person sitting next to us. But that's going to be awkward, so we're not going there. The point, the point I'm trying to make is here, there is a joy true joy that can only come from God. True joy can only come from God. And we need to define joy because I think we get, we lose sight of this. Joy, joy is, is not the same as happiness, of being happy. That happiness is um, circumstantial. Happiness, happiness is a response to our happenings. So whatever our situation or our circumstances will determine our happiness. But you see, joy is deeper 
Joy is not, defi- is not defined by our well-being. It's not connected or tied to our well-being. That, that you can have joy even when your circumstances aren't right. You can have joy even when you're poor. You can have joy even when you're sick. You can have joy even when you're down and out. You can have a joy that comes only from the Lord. And that's where our strength comes from. Joy is the result of living by the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, we read uh, about what it looks like to be a Jesus person in this fight. This fight between the flesh and the spirit, between our desires and what God desires. And Paul says the the desires, the the selfish desires are obvious. The the sinful desires of um, seeking ourselves, envy and jealousy and and all these things, those are obvious, all right? But, But what's the joy or what's the fruit of someone living by the Holy Spirit? Do you remember? He says there's fruit, fruit. He says love, love is fruit of the Holy Spirit. But then what's the second one? Joy. Joy is a natural byproduct of living by the Spirit. That if you are living, letting God direct and guide, the Holy Spirit is going to produce joy. Joy is not the same as happiness, but joy, true joy can only come from God. And when we look at this, we have this filter when we read scripture I had this filter that misunderstood joy, number one. And then two, I think I totally misunderstood and had the wrong picture of Jesus. I don't know how you picture Jesus, but you might have a filter there. That Some of our filters come from our upbringing, from what we were taught when we were little. And so when we read scripture, is it going to be reinforced or are we going to let scripture interpret scripture? Are we going to let God lead us? in our understanding. And I understand now, or I realize that my understanding of what Jesus looked like was totally wrong. That I, I grew up in a great Christian home. Mom and dad were, were wonderful. And we went to this church where, where there were a lot of committed Jesus people. They were seasoned saints. When you think of them, at least from a kid's perspective, Joy wasn't the word that came to mind. They they were very serious. Now, I can't judge their heart or their commitment or anything. That's not the point. The point is, I portrayed as if this is what a Jesus person looks like, then Jesus must look like this. And so I saw Jesus as this guy who is always serious all of the time. And as I've grown in my understanding, there is no way that Jesus didn't know how to have joy. There is no way. I believe he enjoyed life. He put the joy in life and there's no joy, true joy in life without him. Just look, what was Jesus' first miracle? Turning the water into wine. Think about that. The party, weddings were big parties back then. The party was dying down. They were running out of wine. And Jesus, what? Takes the party to a whole new level. (laughs) You look, the party animals of the day loved hanging out with Jesus. They wouldn't have wanted to be with Jesus if what? He didn't have love and joy. It wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to tell the disciples, may my joy be complete in you if he was a grouch all the time. No, Jesus had to have been full of joy 
and wants to see us full of joy, but there's an enemy. The enemy in John 10, 10 comes to steal, kill and destroy, but what? God, Jesus has come so we might have life to the fullest. That's with joy. Joy is so important. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Think about that. You go all the way back to the very first temptation. Our quest for happiness is, or happiness will lead us to choosing something other than God. Instead of choosing joy, we will choose sin in pursuit of happiness. And yet joy is the one thing that should come when we think about Satan falling, his kingdom being destroyed, the ground being recovered from the enemy of the kingdom going forward, the good news of the kingdom. Joy should be the natural byproduct. Spurgeon said, the joy of the Lord does the most damage to Satan's empire. The 72 come back rejoicing, right? And Jesus, he doesn't say, no, 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 stop your joy. He raises the joy to focus on heaven, eternal life, life that only comes from God. You see, if we were honest, there'd be times where we choose happiness or, or choose something else other than joy in the Lord. We wouldn't sin if we didn't, right? But there are times, I mean, how many times have you missed time with the Lord because you chose something else? Something else like sleeping in. How many times have you not done as much time with him as you really felt like you should have and even wanted to because you, you wanted something else because of friends or the ball games on or, or some other activity you're involved in that you have neglected to choose joy and instead chose happiness. We've all been there. But when we see what he has done for us, how good he is, and that we only are at our best when we are in him and with him, then it should lead us to a sense where our joy doesn't seem, there is no joy outside of him is what I'm trying to say. That joy comes from God. And especially when we see God's gracious will. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not rejoicing in that people weren't understanding, but he's rejoicing in that what? These little children were seeing who the father was in Jesus, Right? This is amazing to me that you look in Genesis, we make a train wreck of things with sin, changes everything, and the Bible all points to Jesus and how God is saving, restoring man, redeeming man. All throughout scripture, that's what it's about. That is what it's pointing to. You see, God's will is very clear. When, when Jesus thanks the Father for his will, well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, what does he tell us in scripture? Over and over again, we see God's will is to save man. First Peter, or second Peter, sorry, chapter three. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, I urge you, first of all, to, to pray for all people, ask God to help them so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants what? Everyone 
to be saved and to understand the truth. John 3, 16, probably one of the most well-known passages of scripture. For God so loved who? The world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's will is for man to be saved. That's the whole reason Jesus came was to redeem us, to bring back humanity and God, to restore the relationship. This is the gracious will of God. And Jesus refocuses their joy and says, rejoice that your name is in heaven. Rejoice what God is doing. Now, if anybody would have seen what God was doing, wouldn't you think it would have been the religious leaders? Wouldn't you think it would have been the Pharisees, the, uh, the priests, those that devoted their lives to studying the scripture? The very ones who were saying to people to point to God, you wanna see God and his holiness and then look at the temple. And the whole time missing that the holiest of holies, the holy one was among them, Jesus. Pointing, saying, you see the price of our sin and the forgiveness, the atone, only way we can be at one with God is through the altar. And yet not realizing that Jesus, the lamb of God was there. It wasn't the wise and understanding crowd that was getting it. Who was it? It, it was the little children. Now, now Jesus isn't calling them little, little children, literally. He, he, he's saying it's, it's how God works. When Jesus came, you look at the nativity scene. He wasn't born in a fancy palace for everyone to see, right? He was, it, there wasn't even enough room at the hotel for him. That, that, that God comes and he uses the weak and changes the weakness into strength, right? That's how we know it's the Lord. That's how God works. And these common and ordinary disciples, these, these 72, they weren't the brilliant scholars who you would think would see, but yet they were seeing God in Jesus. And this is where Jesus, he turns to the disciples and he says, blessed, you're blessed because of what you see. You guys, the, the little children were getting it. Why does Jesus call them little children? It's not a slam at all. It was, I believe it's because like little children, little children are dependent. Little children are, are dependent. There's an innocence and there is this, this eagerness to believe. I love what Pastor Ernie says that, that I want to butcher his quote, but here it goes. Um, it, that, that you usually don't have to talk a child into believing in God, but you have to talk them out of it. That children tend to be eager to believe. We, we have sick people that are, are even kind of mean with the gullibleness of children, the gullibility. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, my uh, five-year-old um, at the time, he's now six, but Z uh, was in the living room and I come into the living room and here's what I see. I see Z talking to the computer. Oh, PC, turn on. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the PC, the computer monitor turns on. Then I see him go, oh, PC, turn off. <laughs> and it turned off. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't know this computer was this cool. You know, crazy technology. Well, it, it turns out it's not what our computer can do. It's what our family can do. 
Um, I don't wanna throw anyone under the bus, but Megan and one of my sons convinced Z that if he talked to the PC with his hands, that it would do whatever he told him. What Z couldn't see was mom was in the chair behind him with a remote controlling the monitor. When I talked with Megan about this, she said, if you get your five-year-old to believe that he can control things by talking to them with his hands, you ride that bus. <laughs> they sold it hard, but you know, children, there's, there's this eagerness to believe, to discover with wonder. That's what I believe these people were, the disciples were seeing. Like kids, they were eager to learn more. Their hearts were open. The religious leaders, they'd missed it because of their filter. The God's kingdom and how God was working, his redemption of man didn't look like what their filter said it had to look like. It was totally different. And it was these, these simple ones that were getting it. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he's very clear. He says, you guys are so blessed. You're blessed by what you see and what you hear. That, you know, the prophets and kings, they long to see what you see. We think, how cool would it be to be a disciple? Can you imagine walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, following Jesus everywhere he went, seeing him do all these miracles, miracle after miracle, healing the sick, even raising the dead? How awesome would it be to be a disciple and walk with Jesus? Jesus says they are blessed. They're blessed because they are seeing Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father in the passage that Jordan read earlier. Jesus told the disciples, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. But I've got a crazy thought. While we consider the disciples blessed, I mean, if Jesus says you're blessed, you're blessed. Crazy thought, we're even more blessed than the disciples. I say that because in, in John, we read about Jesus resurrecting from the dead and he appears to the disciples and the disciples are blown away, rightfully so. And one of the disciples, Thomas, wasn't with them. So when Thomas heard the news from the others that Jesus had risen from the dead, Thomas said, no, nope, nope. I will not believe it until I see it. Thomas knew that he had been crucified. They nailed him to a cross. They had run a spear in his side to finish the job. Thomas knew you don't just come back from that. But then a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas. When Jesus appears to Thomas, he says, look, Thomas, you can see the scars you can see the nail holes. You can see the side piercing. You can see it, Thomas. And Thomas' response is, my Lord and my God. I mean, when you pull off your own resurrection, we're going to listen, right? <laughs> my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to Thomas, you, you believe because you've seen. But Jesus tells Thomas and John chapter 20, 29. Blessed are those 
who believe without seeing me. That's us. That's us. The disciples were with Jesus, but do you realize we are in Jesus? It's not just with Christ, it's in Christ. If we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 8, he says, you love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Why is there so much joy? It's from the Spirit. And listen, the reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. See, we, we envy the disciples when, when they would envy us, not just to be with Christ, but to have Christ inside. You remember when Jesus died on the cross, the temple with the curtain uh, between the Holy of Holies separating man and from God's presence, what was torn in two. You see, there isn't a building that we can build to house God, but rather it's the buildings he's built. It's us that our bodies, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is living in us. That's where the joy comes from because being in Christ trumps being with Christ every day. Now, I know I say this and some of us think, well, maybe that's true for others, but that's not true for me. Do you realize that God wants to give us his Holy Spirit? If, if we love to give gifts to people we love, then how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Peter is preaching after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Peter is preaching a message to, to the very people who had rejected Christ. And he says, yeah, you guys messed up so bad that you nailed God's son, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that you have been looking to for, for forever, but missed because of your filter. You guys have nailed him to the cross. And the crowd said, man, what do we do? Peter's response in Acts 2.38 was repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read that and think, well, that's just them, right? No, no, look at 39. For the promise is for you and who? Your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, all who are far off, future generations, do you realize the promises for us? That God's will is to save man, to redeem man, and he has done it through Jesus. And here we are seven, over 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem, and guess what? We are 2,000 years far off, but that's not too far for God. Right here in Pine Top, Lakeside, Arizona, this small little town, God says, hey, I wanna give you my spirit. If that doesn't give you joy, I don't know what will.
So how's your joy? Do you need to refocus? Do you need to remember how good the good news is because you remember how bad the bad news is? We don't, we don't deserve heaven. That's all God's grace, his gracious will your joy. And I, I know I don't stand up here and say, you know, this flippantly that we should have joy in our life because I know church, we've, we've got some family that has been through some really hard, hard days, hard times. Remember joy isn't the same as happiness. Joy is different. You see, joy isn't saying you will never cry. Joy is knowing there will be a day that he wipes away every tear from our eye. So three challenges for this week for Jesus' people. First challenge, choose Jesus. Choose Jesus, choose joy, choose him. Are you choosing him or are you choosing something else? Second challenge is I want you to read scripture. First Peter chapter one, verse three through 12. And truly ask God, help me remove the filter and understand what it is you are saying. What is God wanting to say? And then the third challenge would be to share your joy. How are you going to express your joy this week? Your joy that can only come from God. The world needs to know. Love you, church.